Welcome to Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast that explores Christian faith and practice from a Reformed Baptist perspective. My name is Joe Thorne. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. And Jimmy blew us off. Jimmy was supposed to be here. He was very apologetic about it, which means I double down and make him feel as bad as possible. And he's trying to kind of blame other people. I won't say who, but his wife, for not putting some on the counter. I don't know. All I'm saying is Jimmy is not here, but we had it planned to sit down and talk to Krista McDonough, who is a licensed professional counselor. And if you are a, uh, a person that has been to our conferences, then you definitely know Krista because she is our conference organizer. Uh, if you've enjoyed the conferences, which have been amazing, then uh, Krista gets all of the credit for that because she makes it all happen with, of course, a team of volunteers, myriads of myriads. Uh, Krista, thank you so much for, for hopping on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. This is fun. It is. Yeah, we get to talk about stuff, doctrine, and and mental health, and, and counseling, and uh, and you know we'll we'll miss Jimmy, but we'll we'll make it happen. Um, you, I know you just wrapped up counseling. I think right. Were you, you were yeah, in counseling I was sessions working all day. Yeah. Okay. Was so, it a good day? It was a pretty good day. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy, yeah. right? Being a counselor. It is. I'm I'm a little tired, but I'll it'll be good. This will be fun though. This kind of discussion will be energizing. So okay, that's a good, good thing. Yeah. Good. Well, um, uh, Chris's husband, Kevin, is an elder candidate. Uh, he's, he's, he's a guy who is brilliant. He's a great theologian. Uh, he has a lot of wisdom. And uh, one of the, one of the um, benefits, he brings many benefits to our elder team. Uh, but one of them, just one of them, is he has really good insight into team dynamics and how people are functioning, thinking, where we're weak, where we're strong. Like he has, he has that brain and Jimmy has that kind of a brain too, right? Where they can look at things mm-hmm. and sort of see how they work, pull it apart, put it back together again. I, I'm not good at that kind of stuff like those guys are. So we love your husband. He is awesome. You kind of like him. He's all right. All right. He's a cyclist. <laughs> he likes to cycle yes. too. All right. So Krista, you are um, a, a licensed professional counselor. What is that? What, what is that? What does that mean? So every state's a little different in how they license counselors. But here in Illinois, that's actually the first level license. There's two licenses. So um, that's the first level. You pass an exam to become licensed. And then after thousands of clinical hours, then you can sit for the second one, which is licensed uh, clinical professional counselor. I can't even remember okay. all the things. But that when you get that second level license, you can charge more money that (laughs) kind of but then you can open your own practice you can build insurance in your own name like right now i'm not allowed to do that okay like i couldn't open my own is that is that a part of your goal you want to get there no not at all not really okay (laughs) so at least not at this point why not why not do that because then i'd have to deal with insurance and all that stuff and right now where i work there's people that do that so i just get to work with the people i get to counsel people they handle the other stuff and for now i'm really happy with that so what why because you weren't a counselor when we met, nope. like when you guys started coming to Redeemer. No. Uh, why, why did you want to get into counseling? Well, I've always had an interest in this area. So my undergrad degree was in psychology. So okay. it's always fascinated me. Um, but there was a time in my life, really actually my whole life, I've struggled with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, even as a kid, I had separation anxiety. Um, school was challenging at times. Um, I went away to college. Actually did really well, considering that, um, but really struggled with anxiety early in our marriage. Um, Actually, it became an eating disorder. And Mm. so I was in significant treatment. I was in a day hospital program um, in addition to outpatient therapy. So God really humbled me, actually used that to break me, to be honest. Um, And I, I really developed a heart for other people that were struggling. And I remember thinking when I was at some of my lowest points, even maybe defiantly, so I confess that, sorry, Lord, but like I thought, you will use this for something, God. Mm. I'm not going through this for nothing. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, but in in between that time, I spoke in schools about eating disorders, um, things like that. But when our son was in sixth grade, the thought of going back to school kind of occurred to me. Hmm. Um, it was just, I don't know, it wasn't the right time. We moved here to St. Charles after we started attending Redeemer. And so I thought, well, now's not the time. I got to get him settled in school. I've got to do that. But when he was in eighth grade, I was like, okay, I'm bored. <laughs> like, he just doesn't need me yeah, the he's, same he's, way. He's, he's killing it at school. He's, he's doing his thing. Right. He's got his buddies. He's, you know, now he's like 
taking off and leaving and hanging out with every your son who's hanging out with Eli. And um, yeah, so it was just different. And I thought, he's going to leave for college in five years. I need a chapter two plan here, right, right. you know, because we only had we only had him. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine that I knew from our previous church actually had started in this program at Judson University. And we had breakfast and she said, you should do this. And I'm like, I don't know. And she said, what's holding you back? And I was like, the statistics class is uh. what's, you know. But um, but yeah, so I, I ended up doing it and I, I really loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, How long did it take you to get through? Because the, the, I thought it seemed like you really cranked it out. It, it went by very quickly, but it was just under three years. Okay, three so years. So it, it was, yeah. Time flies. It did. For some it, reason, it felt like you got it done in a year. I know that's not no. possible, <laughs> but it just felt like, I man, wish. you really seemed to be cranking that out. It went it went by quickly for me too. But um, yeah, so that was, that was really great. And then I was fortunate to be hired um, at a practice here in St. Charles. Nice. It's a Christian practice or a faith-sensitive practice, which is really nice too. I really enjoy working there and I'm very now, blessed to Now, I know this place because we recommend people to different counselors for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and Jimmy and I have talked about this, you know, um, some people have a problem and uh, they might go to a, a, a Christian counselor that we know, CCEF style. Right. Um, and there are other issues where, we're, you know, eating disorders and whatnot, where we really want somebody to have a, a broader education and a better understanding uh, of those particular issues. Right. So, but we still look for someone who is obviously a Christian, somebody mm-hmm. who has a biblical worldview. And that's obviously where you are. Now, the place where you're at, you said it's, uh, it's, faith friendly yeah i forget what we say on our website but like yeah faith friendly or faith sensitive um so i have clients that are non-christians right but i have clients who are christians um so we want people to know that we will acknowledge their faith you know and things like that but yet we don't there's some practices that are without a doubt a christian practice right and somebody that's not a christian might not feel comfortable going Mm, there got it um but we're more in that kind of that middle lane, I right, guess. Right, right. So people would feel comfortable going there and not be wondering, oh, is this is this going to be clobbering me over the head with the Bible time? Right. Um, okay. And now, but if I suppose if if somebody comes in and they say that they're a Christian, then that is a natural, yeah, kind of outworking of, right. of the sessions and everything. Right. Yeah. And to me, that's that's when it's for me in the sweet spot because yeah. when we can combine really solid theology and psychological principles, mm-hmm. that's that's where it's at. Oh, you, you are so uh, going to hell. Uh, <laughs> integrating psychological <laughs> principles. Uh, is it hard Is it hard being an Orthodox Christian, a serious Christian? You're, you're a great theologian. Uh, is it hard to be that, but also be a licensed professional counselor? It, it's challenging in some ways because you are limited, right? The state limits me if I, I can't like preach at people. You know, um, even the ethics of the profession would say, you know, it, it actually faith or religion is part of being a multicultural counselor, which is really interesting in these times right now. Okay, that that is a thing. And so I am required ethically to be sensitive to people's, whether it's their ethnic culture, um, all different kinds of or their things. religion. But yeah. yes, we also need to be respectful of their religion. So conversely someone who is not a believer as a counselor needs to be okay with talking with someone Mm. who actually is okay so it works both ways um but it can be challenging there's times where yeah it's difficult if i'm counseling a couple that is having trouble in their marriage and they're moving toward divorce that's hard i don't want to see people get divorced but yet people's lives are messy and and things happen and so yeah, it, it can be challenging. Um, there's other people that, you know, they may have more egalitarian beliefs. Like sure. they may be Christians, but they're like, I love women pastors. And it's like, okay, but this isn't the place right, to talk sure, about that. So we're, you know, I don't care, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it can be challenging sometimes, but but yeah, I can, I can kind of parse that out. But when someone's open to it, it's great to be able to be free to talk about those things. Well, I know, like, one of the guys that I love is David Murray. I don't know mm-hmm. if we've talked about him yeah, a whole lot. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but he wrote a book called The Happy Christian. Mm-hmm. Have you read that? I have it. I haven't read it yet, but, Man, yeah. because he has all the... Now, listen, if, if you don't know, first of all, if, if, you've, if you're a longtime listener, you know David Murray saved my life. Um, I would have been 
out of ministry, burned out, fried up, you know, whatever. Uh, but David Murray was a guy that counseled me and walked me through it. He genuinely saved my life. So David Murray was a professor of practical theology and Old Testament at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, if you don't know what that is, ever hear of Joel Beakey? Yeah, I thought so. That's his seminary. So anyways, um, so this guy is uber reformed, Scottish reformed, like, you know, and uh, and he wrote this book, The Happy, he wrote a little book on depression, uh, Christians Get Depressed Too, and stuff like that, which is great. But he wrote this big book on happiness and he uses all the cutting edge research that has been done on the psychology of happiness and, and says, this is good science. Mm-hmm. This is just good science. And now if this is true, how much more should we have access to this in light of the these gospel truths and these theological truths that we confess as a Christian? Right. So I, I, I'm grateful that we have Christians that are in the professional psychological world and benefit from the research that has been done. Right. And it, and for me, you know, when I was going back to school, I was trying to decide: Do I want to go to school and do this? Mm-hmm. Do I want to do like the CCFEF? type thing or biblical counseling or what is it that I want to do. And in some ways, part of why I chose what I did was I thought, okay, I'm going to get the full degree. I'll have more options, right. you know, that kind of thing. But another thing as I've gone through it is that I really see this as a ministry. Mm. You know, obviously I get paid for what I do, but I also see it as a ministry of God's common grace. Yeah. I'm an instrument of his common grace because clearly non-believers can recover yeah. from various things, right? Just like non-believers can get cured of diseases or treated for diseases, physical mm-hmm. diseases. I believe the same is true for mental health. And so that's the way I view what I do. I'm glad that there are biblical counselors. They, you know, there's a role for the that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There are some really bad, there are some bad you, professional counselors. You said it, uh, not me. <laughs> there are some crazy. It's true of every profession, right? biblical yeah. counselors too. It's true of all professions, yes. but yeah. So yeah, we all, I think, play a role in that. But if to me, that's part of my privilege of mm. what I do, that if they get to see a glimpse of God's grace through me, I may not lead them to Christ. I may not yeah. talk about that, but they may see something or hear something that plants a seed mm-hmm. that God uses. And right. so that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's no one ministry is going to hit every aspect of our humanity, right? right? Um, so I have a particular emphasis as a pastor. Um, I don't get into politics or, you know, uh, certain, and, and there, that's a worthy field, right? There mm-hmm. are people that are in that and that's their thing and they help people to work through that. Um, I focus on preaching the gospel. Uh, and so that's my lane. And then other people are, are counselors and they understand so much more about that than I, I'm not a counselor, mm-hmm. I'm a discipler. So right. I can help people with some of the basic things, right. but if people need professional, real help, then I got to refer them to somebody who's in that world, right. who's had the education and the experience. Well, the reason the reason we uh, wanted that well, we always want to bring you on, but we I, I thought like I came across a tweet recently, uh, and I can't find it, of course, uh, but the tweet basically said something like the the doctrine of total depravity is harmful to the mental health of many people who are in crisis. And so I looked and I found a number of tweets, uh, and that's just on Twitter. I mean, I could have done Facebook and looked for blog posts as well. But um, uh, there's quite a bit of chatter out there about Calvinism and total depravity in particular. Here are just a couple of tweets uh, that I pulled uh, just today before we uh, before we got started. Uh One, uh, this lady, Alexandra, says, I don't believe in total depravity, so shrug. I think it is very dangerous for one of many reasons because of the way it affects people who struggle with mental health. Another lady named Casey said, I don't believe in total depravity for various reasons, one of which is my mental health. Um, Brianna said, uh, there are Christians who are anti-mental health because they believe people who put themselves first are worse off. We can even just talk about that. Like the, that's, yes, you put God first, but right. it's like Jesus says, uh, and, and Paul, I, I'm forgetting. Um, I think it's Jesus said, no one ever hated his own body, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you, you do love yourself. Like you're, you're supposed to love yourself, just not above God. And anyways, we can get into that. Right. Um, okay. I would much rather put myself first and believe I am naturally a garbage person for just being alive. Uh, if anything, the gospel through the lens of total depravity is trash. 
not me. So you get the idea, right? There are people that are saying like, uh, you know, I'm done. There's another one. Rachel says, uh, I'm done with the theological belief of total depravity. Like I've been done. It's inexcusable. It is the core of mental health abuse in the church to be taught to totally not trust yourself and have an unsafe attachment to yourself. There's no good news in that. And then one more. To be quite honest, I think being raised with the doctrine of total depravity seriously effed. That's how she actually spelled that out. Effed up my mental health like I'm a worthless sinner. That's who I am at my core. So what even is the point of living? So you get the, you get the idea. Um, this is not a scientific sampling. I do notice I didn't find any. They were all women. And these are just the ones I, but all the ones that I found were women. I don't think that means anything. I just found it interesting. It is interesting. Um, maybe they're thinking through these things in ways that guys aren't. I don't know. Even though I, I don't like the conclusions here. I don't, it probably doesn't mean anything. But my basic question is, they're taking issue with Calvinism and in particular this doctrine of total depravity. What do you, as a licensed professional counselor, uh, think about this particular sentiment? You're a Calvinist. I mean, I, you know, right. I, everybody knows this about you. Who knows you? Um, I guess when I was thinking about it, it's, I don't think that, the doctrine of total depravity leads to more poor mental health. Total depravity leads to poor mental mm, health. That's good. Yeah. You know, right? So the doctrine of total depravity is just pointing out what actually exists. Okay. Right? Yeah. So. That our mind is impacted by sin. That our right. emotions are, are very being at, at the core. Physically, mm -hmm. mentally, spiritually, all of it has been affected by sin yeah and there's just no way around it um and in, in some ways what some of these women were saying in their tweets is true if we just stopped at we're totally depraved and then didn't continue on yeah right. that would be depressing that would be like what's the point of going on but the next step is the gospel there's right. there is a solution right there is salvation to be found um so yeah i i do i do think it's the first step in you know, stepping toward the gospel is acknowledging that we have this sin problem. And frankly, that's very much what therapy is like. Mm. Um, if anybody has gone to therapy, you didn't go, like it didn't occur to you to go, I wonder if I should go to therapy. And you didn't, most likely you didn't immediately make the appointment and get there the next day. Right. It takes a process. You might even be denying that you have a problem. Your friends might be saying like, I'm worried about you. Something's wrong. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. There's usually... A, a fairly long process that people go through of coming to grips with the fact that they have a problem. Okay. Whether it's they're depressed, they're anxious, maybe they drink too much, whatever it might be, most people go through these stages of change. Um, and one of it is pre-contemplation. They're basically not even admitting that there's an issue. Okay. But the first step in getting better is acknowledging there's a problem, whatever that problem is whether it's a physical ailment, spiritually or mentally. And so to me, the doc pointing out the doctrine of total depravity, discussing it, that's the first step in moving toward being saved. Yeah, it's an acknowledgement that there is a problem. It's a real problem. Right. And But what if you can't get to the gospel? Like like you said, there, you're, you're in counseling sessions where you can't necessarily get to the gospel. To the gospel. Can, can it understand? And you're not going to say, well, listen, the Bible teaches this this truth about total depravity. Obviously, you're not going to do that unless you have the the freedom to do so. Right. But does the doctrine of total depravity then, in in a setting where you can't go right to the gospel, uh, leave you like tied up and restricted so that it's it is only a burden? I don't think so because you know there we have discovered how people's minds work, um, just like. Doctors have discovered how the body works. You know, again, God in his common grace has allowed us to kind of figure some of these things out. So even what I would call and what most people call secular psychological theories actually have spiritual truth behind them, whether the guys who came up with it or not realized it. Mm. Um, one of them is cognitive behavioral therapy. Most people have heard of that. It's very common. It's extremely well-researched. We, we just call it CBT, CBT you know, in right. the industry. That's in the what we business, do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so it's it's really, really well documented that it, it works very well for most things. Well, what is that? What it, I mean, explain what cognitive behavioral therapy so is. So the idea behind it is that our thoughts 
affect our feelings, which also affect our, our decisions and our actions. And, and we have some control over that. Mm-hmm. We control what we think about, what we meditate right. on, right? right? And so like often what I'll say to my clients is, you know, we're just sitting here in the comfort of my office, but I bet if I asked you to recall an event that made you really angry, it wouldn't take you very long and you would be just as angry as mm-hmm. you were in that moment. But we're just sitting here in my office, yeah. calm and stuff. That's how powerful thoughts can be and memories can be. It can evoke those emotions even when we're not in the situation anymore. And so if we can acknowledge like, wow, what I'm thinking is really affecting me, and then I'm making decisions based on how I feel, they can be good or they can be not so good. So is, is it a thing? Because I think it's a thing, but like you can help me work through this because you have more experience in this. But it seems to me that you know maybe a kid who's raised by a parent or parents who are constantly saying, shut up. You're an idiot. And by the way, they, they, this is common. This is not, mm-hmm. I, I know for a fact, this is common. Um, you're an idiot. You know, you're, you're dumb. You're never going to amount to anything, whatever. Some abusive parents like that, like emotionally abusive. Mm-hmm. They can grow up thinking those things, repeating those things. So there is the cognition part, right? They start to believe it. Yeah, they so, internalize it. And it, so that then leads to a, you know, particular kinds of behavior, whether it's fear and, and the limitations of, of trying, or maybe just they totally embrace it. And they, it, so that's a thing, right? Like you, you met it. I heard a guy, one more, one thing on this. Like I heard a guy uh, and he's, he's more of like the motivational guy, but he was saying, uh, listen, if you keep telling yourself, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm too stupid, then you never will. But if you, it, this is not the power of positive thinking in any just kind of name it and claim it way, but he was arguing, it sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. You need to retrain how you think about yourself and about the possibility of, of achieving things in your life. So th- this is related to that, right? Absolutely. So in your example of somebody who's been abused, let's say, yeah, you start to believe that. And then I think even if you don't consciously think it, you're like, well, this is what they're saying I am. Mm-hmm. I might as well actually be this way. Mm-hmm. And and so now it's acting itself out, you know, in the mm-hmm. way, the choices you make, the things that you do. And yeah, so absolutely. Most, most people who are leading what, you know, we would look at and go, wow, that's a troubled person or something. There's something behind that, right? You know, and and sometimes they've been sinned against. Right. It's not that they're they're just overtly committing sin, right? That can be true, but sometimes they've been sinned against and they don't know how to cope, and so yeah. then they use other other methods, like but, in the Breakfast Club. <laughs> I think his name is Bender, uh, but uh, yeah, the the burnout kid. Yeah, you know, he is the way he is, and you start to realize you hear all these kids' stories, and uh, and he's physically and emotionally abused by his parents yes. and you can see like the consequences that that has had on him so he's acting out and he's responsible for what he does but there there isn't a cause right for that, an and origin in, that's such a great movie and in fact all of them are acting out in their own ways yeah. due to what yeah. what their upbringing is right some just look more socially acceptable than right. others and that's really true of all of us but back to what you were saying about like is this the power of positive thinking and that kind of thing I would argue, even though people use it like that, right. again, this is how God has made us. Because when we look at scripture, I mean, what what does Paul say in so many places? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah. Not by, be transformed by behaving better. Mm. Not be transformed by getting your feelings in order. No, renew your mind. It's the first step. And then you can do what God's will is and, and yeah. things like that. But so that is the first step. The renewal of our mind then is is really the the mind being changed and transformed through the truth, mm-hmm. right? The truth of God. And just for the record, all truth is God's truth, right? So truth does help us. Um, now we have the, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and, and the gospel truths that renew our minds. Um, but there are, all truth is helpful for us, right? In, right? in this way. And so even though we may not have uh, all of the answers in a particular counseling session. Uh, there is still the communication of truth. There's still this, you know, movement towards people to understand who they are, what they can right. do, what they can control, what they can't control. Exactly. Let's enter into a counseling session right now. Okay. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> so I had parents who um, were very kind and generous. Uh, they loved me. I never questioned that they loved me. They never abused me. Uh, they joked around with me all the time, which is probably part of the way I am. Uh, but they, um, 
They were never abusive. If anything, they were uh, maybe a little, <laughs> they weren't a little, uh, I didn't have any real rules growing up. I could do whatever I wanted as long as I didn't disrespect mom and dad. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I've always struggled with uh, self-image, poor self-image. Uh, we're not talking humility here. Uh, we're just saying like, I just, I think I'm a loser. I'm, I'm no good. Uh, I, 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 and it's not that my parents ever said that to me. And of course, some kids probably said that to me, but that's kids say that to all kids. Mm-hmm. But I've always struggled with a fair evaluation of who I am and what I can do. I've always struggled with not affirming the good and only affirming the bad. Where did that come from, Krista? Total depravity. <laughs> <laughs> not always a cause, right? <laughs> no, I... I mean, yeah, there are. I mean, you know, I guess one could argue, uh, you know, like you said, there weren't a lot of rules, a lack of structure. Kids crave limits. You know, they don't think they do, but they do because that communicates love. It communicates safety. It communi- mm. you know, it communicates those things. So that, and I'm not, please don't no, <laughs> think hey, I'm dumping hey, on your parents. Hey, dad. Hi, hi, hi dad. <laughs> Krista is calling you out. No, I'm not. No, people, but you know But they would even say that. They would be like, we were, we, you know, they had rules with the other kids. I was the last one. That happens a lot with the last and, one. And all the kids with the rules, they all, you know, went off into drugs and, and bad behavior anyway. Uh, so <laughs> I think they were just like, hey, man, just do your thing. Uh, we, they couldn't control me anyway. So, you know, well, so there, there can be other things outside of us that are influencing us. Sure. But we can never, ever get away from what's going wrong inside of us, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that is total depravity. You know. Let's talk about total depravity because okay. a, lo- a lot of what people are are talking about here really isn't a proper understanding of total depravity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible doesn't teach us to to think of ourselves as as worthless nothings who are j- nothing but uh, evil and sin. In that we're we're not made in God's image, like because we are, right? So it, it's missing quite a bit. So I thought, why don't we? Um, We'll look at a couple of things here. Uh, the 1689, the Second London Confession, Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, in chapter six, uh, paragraphs two and three says this. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So that's exactly what you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, they being the root, our parents, Adam and Eve, they being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed. So, okay, so there's the, we are guilty for what they did because in some way we did that, Romans 5, but we've also received this sinful nature, right? It's gone to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and We are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all the other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. So a lot of that reflects what you've been saying here. Like it affects every part of our being. Absolutely. Absolutely. R.C. Sproul says this, um, and and he says this in his book, uh, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. He says, total depravity means radical corruption. We have to be careful to note the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. To be utterly depraved is to be as wicked as one could possibly be. Hitler was extremely depraved, but he actually could have been worse. I am a sinner, yet I could sin more often and more severely than I actually do. I am not utterly depraved, but I am totally depraved. For total depravity means that I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, do sinful deeds, have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. So total depravity speaks to the comprehensive nature of our corruption. It doesn't mean that we are all alike in the expressions of evil. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we've all commit the same particular evil deeds. And some sins are more heinous than other sins. Uh, I think that we even see that reflected in scripture, right? Right. Uh, yes. Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you are committing adultery. And yet committing adultery is held up as a more severe manifestation of sin. Both need to be addressed, but there there are differences. And so, you know, when you're looking at scripture, uh, there's, there's a lot of scripture that, that speaks to this. Um, but the idea, like, are, are people basically good or are we basically sinful? Are we basically good or are we basically evil? And there's nuance to be said there. But in Ecclesiastes 7.29, we read, 
See, this alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And this is this has gone into all the world, like all people. No one has has escaped this. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? Uh, Titus 1, 15 and 16, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. So like, and again, there's, there's I'm going to link to a, to a, a document that's been put together by someone else that lists all of the verses that relate to this. So total depravity speaks to our comprehensive corruption. Every part of our being is impacted by sin, which helps us, right? Because, oh, it's, it's my mind. And if my mind isn't working right, then that's going to have an impact, just like you're saying. And then there is, of course, the doctrine of total inability related to total depravity. And total inability does not mean that we cannot do any relative good in the world. It means we cannot do any meritorious good before God. That's an important distinction. Right. So yes, yeah. people do relatively good things. They're never perfectly done, uh, but they are civilly, you can be civilly righteous, righteous in the land, righteous among your peers, mm-hmm. but no one can be righteous before God because our hearts and our minds are defiled. That's what it is. But to be, be really clear, what it isn't, it doesn't mean that you are a total loser that has no value. Right. The the total depravity doesn't teach that. Corruptions of total depravity might teach that. But like Sproul points out, you're not utterly depraved. You're totally depraved. And that speaks to why we struggle with the things that we struggle with. And it doesn't mean that 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 our humanity itself is totally obliterated. Our humanity is marred. Right. And even like sin leads us to act less human. Right. And our redemption in Jesus actually makes us more human. Mm hmm. So, but the Imago Dei remains and it's when we start to corrupt or overwork these doctrines and, and take them out to their uh, unintended, uh, like superimposed ends that, that I think bad teachers produce, it does lead to a lot of problems. So when some of these people are saying like, what I was taught about total depravity has messed me up. That could be very true. That could be, yeah, that's it, true. It's not the doctrine. One one example that I like is um, there's a movie called The Witch. I'm not recommending it, but it's a it's a horror movie um, that takes place in uh, the 17th century. So we're talking. This is a, a Puritan uh, colony. It's a Puritan city, and uh, it begins with a family that, or a, a dad, a father, head of a household, who was being charged by the church for teaching heresy. He denies it and says, you're teaching heresy. This is not a Christian movie, guys. Just letting you know. Um, and so they said, if you don't repent, you're going to, you have to get kicked out. So they're kicked out. And, um, and while they're out, he's catechizing his kids. He's actually using Cotton Mather's uh, catechism. He's catechizing his kids. And uh, so they're, they've got good reformed theology being communicated to them through the catechism, but the family completely lacks any sense of assurance. They're all afraid that they're going to go to hell because they have such a a warped understanding of total depravity. Mm. They don't really get the gospel. So a a corrupt form of Calvinism can do a lot of damage. Sure. But a healthy understanding of it, I think, like like you're saying, can help. So so you, you, you touched on this earlier. I just want to revisit it. How can total depravity help us understand mental illness? Well, for me, you know, one thing... I've had discussions with people. Um, one time we were even talking about it in our community group. And somebody said, well, you know, is mental illness or other things that people struggle with, alcoholism and things like that, is it sin or is it disease? And my answer to that would be yes. Because you're a compromising <laughs> secular counselor, Krista. <laughs> well, maybe. So how is it both true? I think it both can be true because of total depravity, right? Mm-hmm. So Yes, sin is at play because we have a sin nature. We just talked about that. So the way you describe total depravity speaks to the pervasiveness of sin, that it it basically infects every mm. part of our being, physical, spiritual, and mental, as we said before. So sin is at play. That doesn't necessarily mean that someone committed a particular sin. Right. And because they committed that particular sin, they now are depressed or they now... Right are an alcoholic or th- or whatever, or they have schizophrenia, you know, yep. that's no, we, we know through research that there are some mental illnesses that there is a strong physical component to it, mm-hmm. whether it involves neurotransmitters in the brain, it could involve the physical structures of the brain. 
um, they didn't do anything. So to when you say the physical that. structures of the brain, are you referring to like brain injury and or like the malformation of a brain? Or? Possibly, you know, or or it's not that someone with ADHD, for example, I wouldn't say, you know, like I don't think anyone would say, oh, they're sinful because they have ADHD, right. but but the physical structures of of their brains are a little bit different, you yeah. know, or or other people that are that are. Uh, not neurotypical, you know, whether it's autism or things like that. People were born this way. Mm. I can argue that there are people that are born genetically predisposed to be anxious. Sure. I'm yeah. one of them, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I was really little when that started. I My well, son, uh, Killian, uh, is that way. Yeah. My parents were. I mean, I used to joke that we could, and my sister, we could be a case study, mm. you know, for a family, you know, because we all, we all deal with it in our own way or experience it in a different way, but we all deal with it. And so that's where the sort of disease idea comes in. And I know there's a lot of Christians that, especially with, with substance abuse, right? right. That because there, there is also decision making in there. Yeah. So yes, that's why my answer is yes. It's both because we know that there can be a hereditary factor with alcoholism, for example, and but we also know that there is decision making. Yeah. That a person, when they do drink too much, they are responsible for it. No one else can be. Right. We, nobody else can stop that behavior for them. They have to make that choice. And and want to get better so both things can be at play but they all start you know whether it's disease or whether it's sin it starts with total depravity because that's that's where it all comes from we are broken we are it doesn't mean that we we aren't made in god's image that we're not you know that we're not beautifully wonderfully made right but that there is a disconnect and by the way everybody i know i understand the um the usually knee jerk and oftentimes superficial reaction to alcoholism is a disease. I understand, just like you said, but if you've ever walked with somebody through alcoholism or walked with people through Alcoholics Anonymous, they will tell you this is a disease, but they will never say they're not responsible for what they do. Right. They, the, the whole point is you have to own yourself, your decisions. You have to learn self-control. You have to rely, well, even a would say you got to rely on god you got to rely on a higher power right but uh but even just at the most basic secular level you're responsible for yourself oh yeah so you're at a disadvantage because you're predisposed perhaps but Mm -hmm. that doesn't alleviate you from taking responsibility right and i would say the same thing for me and my struggles with anxiety Mm -hmm. it's like there's a difference between knowing the reason why somebody is struggling with something and excusing it yeah totally that's good two separate things right? right I think it's really helpful for people to understand the reasons why. Mm-hmm. So I understand I struggle with anxiety. What, and we are told in scripture, like, be anxious for nothing, right? So am I sinning all the time that I'm struggling with anxiety? I mean, I guess you could argue that I am because, again, total depravity. But, and anything that's not of faith is sin. Sure. So technically, yeah, I probably am. However, I think the sin really comes in to play Potentially, if I know that I struggle with this anxiety, but I refuse to do anything to deal with it, if I don't actually take steps, whether it's taking medication or getting some help, whatever that form might be, that to me is where, okay, now there's maybe some specific sin that's being committed. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. There's there's the reality of sin in our lives. Like there's never a day in our life when there's not sin in all that we're doing because we're corrupt people exactly even if we're born again and god's given us a, a new heart that that does beat with love it doesn't beat with love perfectly right even our faith is mixed with doubt exactly so I, I i totally agree i i, I love that because you know, look i mean i guess one of the things that I'm, i was thinking as you were talking about that was that you know life isn't fair um some people ha- are are born in such a way that they have a natural confidence. I I tend to think, you can correct me if you disagree. Please disagree with me if you have any disagreements. I think the vast majority of who we are is nature and not nurture. I think, I think like, you know, you can do a lot of damage through nurture Mm -hmm. or you can do a lot of good, but like so much of who we are is just the way we've come out out of the womb. And we have some people, like you said, struggle with anxiety and they're at a disadvantage. They might be in advantaged in other ways, right? But like we, everybody has different burdens, and so no, it's not an it's not an equal playing field in terms of who we are. We all have different limitations and corruptions. 
that's also a consequence of total depravity, right? That right. that sin has wreaked havoc, and it's 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 not uniform, and it's damage. Some people have, you know, I mean, I I think is there in your in your reading and your education, some people are predisposed to anger more mm-hmm. than others. Is that, is that right? Um, I think so. I, anger is an easy emotion, frankly, to go to. Um, sometimes we might feel sad or disappointed, but it's just anger comes out easier. And maybe we don't. It's easier to be angry. Sometimes it's even more acceptable, in a sense, to be angry, mm. especially for men. I'm yeah. going to be honest. You know, like yeah. It's going to be easier for guys to be angry and be like, I'm so angry to another guy than to be like, I'm so disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so yeah. sad. Yeah, especially in the work world. Right. Yeah. Right. So anger is is just, it's easier to be angry. Mm. We see it portrayed in media all the time. And yeah. <laughs> shoot, these days in real life, people are just losing their minds, you know, over yeah. things and getting angry. Um, so yeah, I think, but, but yes, there are some people that really do have issues with controlling their anger and, and there may be biochemical basis for that. You but, know, that but, does but happen. Probably, but probably you, y'all, you're just struggling with anger. Right. Most of y'all are just, you know, need to control your anger, right? <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. But there, <laughs> there's ways to do that. It's interesting when I was talking to, to David Murray, cause I was, you know, I, I won't go into the whole thing, but I was, in, I've always been anxious, but my anxiety took over and I was fearful, shaking, crying at times. Y'all mm. know I don't cry. Um, it was, I mean, I, 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 I was afraid to do anything, even the things that I have learned to accept that I'm good at. And so I started talking to David Murray and, uh, the first thing he did was he, he took a whole inventory, a long inventory of my life, what I'm doing, how I'm living, how I'm eating, how I'm sleeping, how much work I'm doing, everything, family, burden, social, uh, spiritual, spiritual life, sin patterns, all that. He just looked at everything and he had, he saw like a lot of problems, like, well, you're, you're not resting enough. Uh, you're working plenty. You don't worry about the work. <laughs> you need to rest more. And uh, so he started kind of putting everything together for me to see like w- the things that needed to change. And I said, well, would it like the elders have suggested I take a sabbatical? Is that going to help? And he said, no, you're taking a month off. Isn't going to change anything for you. Your, your issues are, are bigger than that. And as I went through all these things, I experienced no relief no help, no change, even if after all the adjustments. And that's when he said, time to go see your doctor mm-hmm. because your brain isn't working properly. If you're doing all these things and, you know, and you're being honest with me, then there is something else happening. And that's when he started talking about brain chemistry and receptors right. and I don't know all that stuff. And I went and saw the doctor. And as soon as I got on the right dosage of citalopram, am I allowed to say that? Is that a bad thing to say? No. Should I not say I love so Okay, so tal- I, Oh, do you take Sal? Okay. We're Citalopram buddies, <laughs> That's you right. and I. <laughs> yeah. We we, we play but poker with Citalopram pills. I, I always say better living through pharmaceuticals. So, <laughs> so but I'll tell you what. <laughs> if I, you need them. I got on that and I was doing all the other things. And for the first time in years I felt normal. Yeah. But for the first time in years I actually felt like me. And when I finally got to hang out with David, he's like, You are a different person. Mm-hmm. Like you're very different and probably not you know i was probably more annoying um but i i think and you can tell me if you, what you think about this i think if i just took the pills i don't think it would have been as helpful i i had to adjust the problems in my life i had to address the whole person as well as get some help for my brain chemistry right i agree very generally doctors don't just prescribe antidepressants and say go on your way right or at least the good ones don't right they want you to be getting some counseling as well um medication is wonderful um when you find the right one and and so i would i would encourage people to you know not everybody does need to go on medication sure most people don't and we could argue if it's over prescribed maybe it is yeah you know i think for a while it was maybe it's not as much anymore um but it, if you do need it, though, I I completely agree with you. Yeah. And and for me, over the course of my life, I was on a few different types, and sometimes they would help, and sometimes then it would go away, whatever. And it's really frustrating because you can feel like a guinea pig, right? You know, because okay, let's try another one, and you're just like seriously, you know, and it's it's really hard. But when I went on citalopram too, the biggest thing my mom said to me, she's like, 
you're back. Yeah, that was crazy, it right? It was wacky. And She's I, like, I, didn't I feel, haven't... You don't feel weird either. You don't feel like... No. You're not in a fog. You're not in a haze. Nope. Nothing like that. No. And these, and just so you know, too, I, I and again, I know some people really feel strongly like they have really strong, like negative feelings toward medication. Mm-hmm. These are not happy pills. No. They're not designed to make you feel euphoric. They're not habit forming. Right? Nope. They're not addictive. No, yeah. you can't. Not antidepressants. They're not habit forming. Um... They make you feel like yourself. They're not yeah. supposed to numb you out. They're, if you do feel that way, then you're probably not on the right one. Right. Or maybe you're on too much of it or something like that. I'm not a doctor, but you know, but like, yeah. Uh, Marie said, hey, listen, um, and now I, I, I have to because uh, my blood pressure is nuts. But um, at the time, he's like, if, if, if your doctor said, hey, you need to take a pill so that your heart works properly, would you take the pill? And I said, well, yeah, because when he told me I needed to see the doctor, I was like, nah. No, this is Satan. It's not my brain. And he's like, well, if the doctor said you need to take a pill to make your heart work properly, you would take that. And I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if your doctor says your brain is not working properly, if it's not producing the right levels right. of serotonin or whatever, uh, then it's going to impact your faith and your feeling of faith. And here's one uh, one consequence of that. I was very fearful of flying i had to fly a lot because i speak mm-hmm. um and i would white knuckle it through uh, the, the the flight attendants would come by and see how stressed i was i wasn't screaming but i was very uncomfortable <clears throat> and they would say are you okay because they could see it and they yeah. would be like i just don't like flying and they were like yeah how about if we get you a couple drinks like they they were like for free on us they wanted to help like i could see it right i have no issues flying now yeah, that's awesome. It's like, that's not going to happen for everybody because some people have right. a fear of flying. Uh, it hasn't changed my fear of spiders. That's still the same thing. But I couldn't pr- even pray myself through into a place of comfort. Right. And in my, even when I was praying in my room, just for God to take away my anxiety and my fear, it was just paralyzing. It, it I wasn't experiencing relief. So now it's not that I don't experience anxiety. I do. I'm still an anxious person. But now I also feel the benefits of praying, of relying on the Lord, right? because my brain's working properly. You know, another interesting thing, too, is talking about anxiety. There's a difference between having anxious thoughts and feeling panic. Right. Very different things. Mm. Panic is a physiological response. And the way I often explain it to my clients is, you know, imagine you and I are sitting here now and a tiger just walked into the room. Mm-hmm. Our body would automatically respond. Well, not mine, but yeah. Okay, Normal well, people, yeah. I would. Yeah. I would either go into fight mode, flight mode, freeze mode, <laughs> yeah. you know, something. I'd climb on the chair. I'd go yeah. out the window, you know, something. to. But I wouldn't think about it. I would just do it. Right, your whole, everything it's changes. Automatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and so for someone who experiences panic, that's what's going on in their brain, in their body. That's mm. what they're experiencing, except there's no tiger in the room. Right. Maybe they see, in your case, maybe it's a spider. You no, know, I don't like that. In, or, or flying, you know, or man, when I was really struggling, for me, it was hard for me to even go pick up Ian at school, and it was less than a quarter mile from my house. Like, I was just that fearful of leaving home Yeah. for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. It made no sense, but yeah. my body reacted as if I was in mortal danger. That's why the people say like a panic attack feels like a heart attack. Oh Is that my why? gosh, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's it. they're awful. They, they are awful. And so if you looked at someone and said, well, just get over that, stop it. <laughs> Believe me, if they could, they would. Yeah. You know, but that that is a biochemical process, you know, in the body. So. And that's part of it, right? It's like sometimes, yeah, sometimes the problem is, you know, you're a worry wart and you need to trust the Lord more. Yes. And, and yes, that's absolutely true um, uh, that for all of us. Right. But sometimes there are complicating factors. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And as Christians, I think we need to give people some grace, mm. you know, when yeah. they're when they're telling us about that. And and maybe don't seek to solve their problem. Just listen. Yeah. Let let them be understood. You yeah, know, m- most of us aren't experts, you know, in doling out advice and solving problems. But we can all learn to become experts in listening, mm-hmm. right? And being a good friend or yeah. a good brother or sister in the Lord. Um, being empathetic. Oh, did oh, I say that word? <laughs> I heard empathy was a sin. We're gonna do a whole episode on that. We need to have you in on that. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't think people understand what empathy means if they think it's sinful. Yeah, I know. There's a whole, yeah, I just, I can't even. Okay, I just, sorry, I shouldn't oh have brought it gosh, up. Triggering me with <laughs> sorry. Wilsonitis. I just can't even. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so I guess, you know, part of, part of this, part of the things that I guess we want to say here is that total depravity, and, and you made this point, Krista, it doesn't stand alone. 
it's one truth Mm -hmm. and it's connected to a bunch of other truths. And so properly understood, it helps us to understand that we're broken and we're in need of repair. We need redemption. And listen, uh, the gospel is not going to fix uh, your, your, your big belly, right? The, the gospel is not going to change uh, my, my heart, my, my physical heart and the way it's, it's uh, you know, it's under a lot of stress right now. Um, it can motivate me to address those issues. The Absolutely. Gospel can, but the mm-hmm. gospel doesn't fix that, right? And so, uh, so there are aspects of, of therapy and counseling that are going to address issues that, the gospel, I know you guys, some of you guys aren't going to like this, the gospel on its own aren't going to fully address because we are psychosomatic beings. We have a body and a soul and or a body and a spirit and we are a soul, however you want to conceive of it. And so the whole person needs help, right? We need education. Uh, we need information. But yes, we ultimately need transformation. We get that through Jesus. We get that through the gospel. And that's what we want everybody to experience. But I am so grateful for professional counselors like you uh, who love people, care about people, want to help people. And uh, especially if they have a Christian worldview, because there is, because um, I, obviously I, I, I know people uh, that are not Christians uh, who love and care and are empathetic or sympathetic or whatever. Um, but you also have more to offer them should they ask, mm-hmm. should they, should they be open to it? Like you have, you have this whole other world in which, uh, you can direct them, which I think is awesome. All right. Well, Krista, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're going to have you back on because you're fun and, uh-huh. uh, and everybody loves you. And, uh, at least our D and D people that have been to the conference, they do. Uh, we want to have you back on. Maybe we'll talk about empathy. Can we okay. do that? Yeah. All right. We're going to, we're going to schedule that. I know you're busy. Super busy all the time, all the time. You and Jimmy. I'm the only one that's not super busy, apparently. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll have you back on. Uh, thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Doc and Devo. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Doctrine and Devotion, and of course the website DoctrineAndDevotion.com. It's got blog posts and articles. It's got some videos. It's got all of our podcasts there, and of course. Subscribe, sign up, use your favorite podcatcher to subscribe to Doctrine and Devotion, tell your friends, and we offer all access. All access is uh, commercial-free, exclusive content only for our supporters. And so you can sign up there and get devotions five days a week and an additional podcast that Jimmy and I do called Banter of Truth that comes out on Tuesdays. Head over to DoctrineAndDevotion.com slash all access to read more about that. Thanks for listening, guys. (music) 